Hello to everyone. I'm very excited to welcome you to our webinar today on illicit trade. My name is Maria Chaplia and I'm research manager at the Consumer Choice Center. The Consumer Choice Center is a global consumer advocacy group working in the fields of science, healthcare, lifestyle regulations, trade, agriculture, and various topics that are of high concern to consumers in Europe and globally. Excited to uh, be hosting this webinar, uh, since as 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 the pandemic has exposed the issues related to illicit trade, especially in relation to drugs. But we also know in the European Union there's problems with cigarettes, pesticides, and all sorts of consumer products. And the issue is that illicit trade undermines consumer safety in the marketplace, and as a result, it creates it creates a situation for uh, potential intervention. But it generally generally raises the question of what we can do to prevent illicit trade and what we can do to tackle it better if there are obviously some mistakes in the way European Union in particular is doing that at the moment. Um, so first I will in introduce our guests and then we will have a 30-40 minute discussion and after that there will be some space for questions. But please feel free to uh, send your questions along to um, whether you're watching on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter, and we will just pick them up and make sure that the, the, the questions get a reply after our discussion with the guests. Um, so to start with, uh, unfortunately, our um, the, Mr. Sean Kelly, who's an a, a member of the European Parliament for Ireland, couldn't join us today, but he pre-recorded his opening remarks, which will be the opening of, of our webinar. Uh, we are also joined today by David Haig, who is the chairman and uh, CEO of Prince Finance, the world's leading Prince Evaluation Consultancy, uh, and Tamara Piroshkova, who is the marketing director at the leading Prince of Spain Forum, a public-private alliance formed by more than 115 leading companies from Spain. Um, so let's start with Mr. Kelly's opening remarks, and then I will give floor to Tamara or David, who would want to go first to comment on his uh, concerns about illicit trade and what he sees as some of the uh, issue areas that we have to explore in this webinar. So, I would firstly like to thank the Consumer Choice Centre for today inviting me to speak at this webinar, looking at a range of important issues facing consumers across the European Union. In particular, I look forward to the discussions on vaccine nationalism and the role of free trade in the post-COVID economic recovery. As the European economy becomes more global and integrated, the EU must strive to find new ways to protect consumers in this digital age. Firstly, however, let us turn to the specific issue of illicit trade across Ireland and the EU and discuss some of the actions which can be taken to protect consumers across the Union. Although frequently thought of as a victimless crime, illicit trade has a significant impact on the Irish economy and more broadly on citizens across the EU. This ranges from industries such as fuel and tobacco to digital media and pharmaceuticals. No area is left untouched. As the title of this event suggests, stopping the rising wave of protectionism brings with it both an abundance of challenges as well as solutions, no more so than in the area of illicit trade. Make no mistake about it, illicit trade 
is a severe and growing threat to our societies. The European Parliament recognises this risk and is committed to tackling this issue as it poses a danger to the integrity of the single market and the customs union. Through the struggling and counterfeiting of products, the smuggling and counterfeiting of products, governments and legitimate businesses are being undermined and consumers are being exposed to unregulated and poorly designed goods. Indeed, when we think about illicit trade, we cannot only see it in terms of luxury branded goods that are smuggled, counterfeited or sold illegally. Medicines, cosmetics and electronics are also found on the black market. And this can pose a particular danger for elderly citizens, patients in our hospitals and young people who are caught up in the associated illegal activity. I cannot make this point clearly enough. The risks of being caught up in illegal trade have ramifications far beyond simple economics. They have a human cost as well. To cite one example, in January 2020, a cargo ship headed for Europe went up in flames in the South China Sea due to shipping containers filled with counterfeit lithium batteries, which were supposed to be sold in the single market, including in Ireland. This is the very reason why consumers should demand smart regulations that help distinguish between illegal products and legitimate ones, while at the same time protecting consumer choice. So, illicit trade is a problem, but what can be done about it? Several key steps can be taken if the European Union and the Member States, including Ireland of course, are serious about improving quality control mechanisms and increasing the transparency of consumer information. Firstly, the scope of the problem is transnational and therefore a unified approach to tackling illicit trade must be cohesive and harmonised. A key part of solving this issue is to create and sustain the conditions under which there should be no incentive for citizens to turn to the black market. This can be achieved in a number of ways by reducing tax burdens, enhancing branding and marketing freedom, introducing harsher penalties for fraudulent trading practices and ensuring greater transparency. By implementing a more consistent and evidence-based approach to the problem across all industries, it is possible to more effectively target the drivers behind illicit trade and learn the lessons from other industries. The first step in addressing any problem is, of course, to understand its root cause. Therefore, it is important to protect intellectual property rights, which remain a valuable asset to those who have invested in the development of goods, products and services. This is particularly important for pharmaceutical and digital industries, where R&D costs significantly exceed many other expenses. Moreover, by educating consumers about the losses caused by illicit trade to public finances, the risks to the individual's health and the involvement of organised crime, the government will help to restore a social stigma associated with illicit trade and delegitimize illegal products. Illicit trade is a global problem. Of that, there is no doubt. Single countries alone cannot defeat counterfeiters. Cooperation 
and coordinated efforts are required from the authorities of all countries. The Parliament is also working on the new consumer agenda strategy for 2020 to 2025, focusing on five areas, green, transition, digital, transformation, effective enforcement of consumer rights, specific needs of certain consumer groups and international cooperation. Under the new circular economy action plan, we are aiming to make products fit for a climate neutral, resource efficient and circular economy while reducing waste, while retaining high quality consumer choice. Consumers can be active contributors to a circular economy through their actions on the demand side. And the EU law has sought to facilitate environmentally friendly consumer choices through information rights. In recent months, a perfect storm has hit British retail, resulting in empty shelves, lengthy waiting times, and grim warnings from some of the industry's heavy hitters. Marks and Spencer, White Rose, Tesco, and Morrisons have joined an ever-growing list of retailers to announce they have been forced to shut stores and scale back plans after struggling to keep the shelves filled with fresh food after Brexit. However, the resilience of the Irish food and drink sector has been shown in the face of Brexit disruption, labour shortages and the COVID-19 pandemic. This has been achieved by companies focusing on employee skills and retention strategies, adjusting supply chains and production processes and on increased automation. Nevertheless, there is a cost to maintaining this level of resilience and in Ireland we need to see a renewed focus across government on reducing the cost of doing business in Ireland as well as a rapid rollout to the sector of funding from the Brexit Adjustment Reserve. Um, that was a very interesting uh, opening statement, and thank you very much for Mr. Kelly for pre-recording his thoughts on illicit trades for our webinar. Uh, I think there were so many points to unveil and to discuss uh, based on, on, on his comments. So I would probably um, start with you, David. So Mr. Kelly raises some very important points about IP protection, marketing, printing freedom. He also focuses very much on the prevention side of illicit trade, more like about what policies can we put in place to ensure that there isn't demand for illicit products. And I wanted to ask you, um, based on the recent print finance reports, which I think the findings would sort of uh, be very much related to what Mr. Kelly was talking about, could you please share your impressions about the, uh, about the opening statement and maybe expand a bit on some of the points raised? Uh, sure, yes. Um, <clears throat> well, it was a very interesting statement and I strongly agree with pretty much everything he, um, he said. Um, <clears throat> I suppose if I could just step back a moment, how brand finance got involved in this. Uh, I set up brand finance 25 years ago to monitor the value of brands and to look at the things that make brands strong or weak. Um, and I'd been working in branding for about 10 years before that. So I've been working in branding for a very long time. And um, over the 25 years, one of the um, things that we have observed is that um, there have been quite a lot of people trying to demonize brands in one way or the other, that brands are, you know, uh, overcharging, that they 
um, are, are not pulling their weight where it comes to um, certain social uh, objectives, uh, that generally they are undesirable. And there was a, a movement a while ago led by Naomi Klein in America uh, called No Logo, which was actively arguing that brands were a bad thing for society. Um, which is sort of contradictory in a way because the illicit trade and counterfeiting is usually strongest where brands are strongest because the profit margins are the highest and so on the one hand the uh, the counterfeiters and the illicit trade people want to get on the back of profitable brands but meanwhile brands are being criticized for not being socially desirable um so last year we produced the third of a series of reports that we produced um, we produced a report in 2017, which looked at the potential consequences to brand value of plain packaging. We updated that again in 2019, and that showed very, very large amounts in the hundreds of billions of dollars of loss to brands. Um, in 2021, we updated that again, but this time what we decided to do was to actually go out and ask people involved in brands, so CMOs and also um, consumers, and we interviewed 500 consumers in each of 12 countries, so 6,000 respondents, because we wanted to feel, to understand, you know, what was the level of cynicism or criticism of brands, which might undermine people's willingness to support brands in the task of stopping the illicit trade. Now, what we actually found was that very high percentages of, of consumers uh, believe that there should be regulation on branded products, quite naturally, and there should be constraints on marketing um, messaging, and that it should be regulated. Now, clearly, most any, anyone sensible would agree with both of those propositions, but um, it then becomes much clearer that consumers like brands. They think brands are extremely helpful. I'll just um, summarize one particular chart where it says that um, what do brands provide or encourage? And there are a number of statements. We asked the consumers what they thought. 95% said that they improve the quality of product choice. And 93 that they improve the quality of products themselves and the safety. 91% um, that they stimulate innovation and new products which are helpful to consumers. 90% uh, ensure that, that the individual gets genuine products, which is obviously what we're talking about here with illicit trade. Uh, but then they also talked about contribution to the economy, um, accessibility of media messaging and understanding about the product category, uh, good jobs, the ability to na navigate between real and fake um, products, um, in encouragement of better solutions for the environment, because most big brands that are profitable want to maintain the environment in order to maintain their, their own health. Um, better treatment of suppliers and of employees and providing economic benefits that will help get out of the downturn from COVID. So very positive. All of the results were in the 80 or 90 percent. And I think it, it's extremely important that to the extent that brands are being demonized, they should not be demonized. They, they are very largely the solution to many of these problems because it's the brands that are funding the extremely expensive business of anti-counterfeiting in various parts of the world where counterfeiting is common and where trademarks are being used wrongly. If you have a weak brand sector, you will have a much less strong defense against the illicit trade. Governments alone cannot 
really stop it because it's too prevalent. So the brands step in to make things happen. Um, and so um, I think one of the problems is that that problem, which I, I hope I've addressed. The other one is I, I still think there's a slight residual feeling amongst certain consumers that um, it's fair game to buy an illicit product, you know, buying a fake Rolex or buying a T-shirt that's that's supposed to be a brand, but is in fact a, a knockoff. Uh, there are still quite a lot of people who who don't think that's it's, they think it's a victimless crime, I think, as as Mr. Kelly said. And I think there, there definitely is a need to actively pursue that. But when you actually look at governmental actions, generally speaking, I would say governments are neutral or indifferent towards the plight of brands. They don't see it's their job to help brands. And I really do think that they should be because it's a fight together to stop the extremely damaging trade that we're talking about. I think uh, it expands on the points raised by Mr. Kelly quite a lot. Um, and uh, with that, I wanted to give the floor to Tamara. Um, so Mr. Kelly mentioned and David, they started elaborating on how um, illicit trade undermines brands and how consumers actually are in favour of brands and they and, and they would like to see this brand's protection in place. And I was wondering if you could expand a bit on how illicit trade tends to undermine the efforts and investments and everything that goes into building these brands that resonates with consumers, that consumers actually want to buy, and how illicit trade targets this feeling of connection between the consumer and brands, and eventually consumers end up uh, in unsafe places or, you know, or buying products that can normally endanger their safety and, and normally wouldn't be the products they would want to buy. And as but, but they buy because they are available on illicit markets and they are not normally able to distinguish between uh, valid products and the ones that, that are being sold uh, as if they were the credible ones. So if you could elaborate a bit on that, maybe also comments again on what David's mentioned and, and what Mr. Kelly talked about. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good afternoon, everybody. It's a pleasure for being here. Thank you for the invitation. A passionate talk about what do brands actually do to make our life better, wealthier, healthier, innovative, you know, more sustainable, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, it all starts uh, with the general idea, and I would say I would just uh, put it in the positive way. In which way brands contribute? to the society and in the end to an individual, to a person, to a consumer or to a customer. So starting from the very creation, there is a lot of investment. Let's talk in terms of money, you know, how much money is put into that, right? So it's starting from the creativity, brand building, brand positioning. We should add later innovation. We should add also creativity in terms of industrial design, technology, uh, sophistication, etc. Now, we talk about brands that go international, so there is an international expansion as well. So it should be invested into brand building and positioning uh, in very many different uh, countries. We should also think about advertising and promotion, let's say, as David referred to, like explaining to the consumers 
who we are, what we do, why we're doing, why improving the lives of people by bringing this new uh, um, or old, I don't know, uh, brands and products worldwide. But then we look inside the company, there is a constant innovation into being more productive, into employing more people, creating more jobs. And not least, uh, altogether today, we are the companies and the brands are very conscious about the necessity of being more sustainable in terms of uh, environmental, of course, climate, but also about all the human rights, etc. etc. So if we took at what is happening on the other sides, those companies that are not creating brands and those companies that are not building any of this uh, competitive advantage, if we just tackle a couple of things, it is, are they really conscious about environment? We would probably say no. Are they cultured about, are they serious about protection of the, the employees' rights? We don't even know. Are they, are they careful about uh, trade um, norms, le legislation, but also trade relationships between not only countries, but also business partners across over the world? We definitely say they don't. They just, as David has mentioned, they just take the advantage of all the good being done on the other side right so how do do the brands defend themselves right how what can the brands do there are two sides of the same coin let's say one is what the brands can do and the other what the consumers can do and we're talking always about ethics about education about behaviors right so from the brand side of course there is all the necessity of um, registration, protection uh, of the brands in the countries, um, offices of the trademarks and patents, also, um, you know, pan-European like um, organizations and also international ones. This is one side, this is how you can um, uh, show your own shape or that you're genuinely the, the owner of, of the brand and the product. And then we have to talk about the necessity, unfortunately, in case of the illicit trade, of defending your own interests in front of the counterfeit and infractors. It's not only that you invest in rent protection, but then you, again, have to invest money or spend money, if you want to use the, the opposite term, to fight against it, right? So from the consumer side, if you think that... Uh, all what we have been saying is not important to you. I think as individuals, we have our liberty, we, are, we have our freedom to decide. If nothing like that, like creating jobs, like taking care of environment, like taking care of people about all this innovation that actually helps us uh, to improve as a society, if nothing like of that is important to you as a person or as a consumer, then it is very difficult to fight against just the price, right? So what is against the price? We have been, uh, there, were, there are lots of studies and research about how it can be damageful for health and safety. I think everybody understands. I remember when I started to work in marketing, we, there was an idea of some brands are more important to you as a person because you take them in, like food and beverage, for instance. So we have a higher you know, barrier mm, mm, towards those brands. So health and safety are important, but it's not only that. It's not only that. It's also having um, products that are 
realized, so that's how manufactured. Or even services sometimes we can talk about services as well not only products but um that are, have been manufactured not according to the current standards so they can be also uh damageful and also mr kelly mentioned for example uh like those that are dangerous actually for the life and safety right like um like the, the containers that were detected in the sea so and uh, additionally i would say that on the consumer side we should really insist very much on that the more information we have and the more the the closer is our relationship with the brand um the better we feel ourselves i think as as consumers as people because if i do like the brand i want this brand to be there all along my life and maybe for my kids and maybe for the and share with the rest of of people how good it is you know so i would say that it is much more important to promote the positive attitude and also more knowledge accessible to the to the people in general but let's talk about people as if they were consumers and clients okay rather and uh, but i also think it is necessary that uh, there are more joint policies on for example european level so it's it's not one country's problem and both david and mr kelly mentioned it it's not something that is happening in one unique country and the damage in terms of uh turnover and loss of jobs are extremely are extremely huge uh thank you very much i think it's a very valuable contribution and builds very well on everything david and mr kelly mentions uh but just probably to um to uh, and to ask a follow-up question what do you think uh it's a question for david and tamara both of you uh, what do you think is one of the factors that entices consumers to what illicit products so price as we know for example when it comes to price when example video games or any other products we know that uh according to to research and the data we can see that both consumers who are well off and consumers who are not very well off so regardless of their income they are still very much inclined to like go on some websites and to not pay for films or various uh, it applies to other products as well and then uh, from this perspective i wanted to ask maybe it's uh, somehow related to accessibility that uh, the criminal groups know to how to reach consumers better than maybe sometimes brands do and could you just maybe expand on what it is along with the price that makes consumers opt for illicit products rather than um, than, than credible ones so sh shall I start? Yes. Okay. Um, well, uh, I was thinking about how one dissects the problem. And I think you can look at the, the problem, the illicit trade problem, the brand counterfeiting problem at a B2B level and at a B2C level. So if you look at a B2B level, there are a lot of situations where uh, the illicit trade counterfeiters, basically criminals, are... Um, copying products and getting them into the supply chain without anyone knowing and uh, it's a very insidious and dangerous thing they're doing it with pharmaceuticals they are doing it with all sorts of safety products things like um, life-saving equipment that you might use at sea they're also doing it in, in relation to high value parts for automobiles and that kind of thing I know, for example, that BMW and Porsche and uh, VW, the, the, the German car manufacturers, have been targeted by illicit manufacturers who produce their products cheap, get them into the 
garage supply chain and you as a consumer have no idea that you've even purchased one of these things until you know the part explodes or you know you're, you're poisoned by the product now there is nothing a consumer can do they don't even know that it's happening to them and very often neither to the b2b people although i expect some are probably complicit you know they know they're getting them cheap therefore there's something funny about them um where you talk about being to see though it's where someone is the consumer is buying the product directly and you know they pretty much know that they are buying a, a knockoff or a counterfeit or a, whatever you want to call it um and there is definitely this belief that if you get it cheap all you're doing is taking away the margin from a greedy brand <laughs> it's exactly the same product it's just as good it will be just as functional as the other product, whatever it is, whether it's a watch or a t-shirt or whatever. But the truth is that nearly all of these knockoff products, there is not an equation between a cheap price and an equally good product. They are not equally good. They wear out, they break, uh, you know, they, they just, they don't work effectively. And I, I think so um, consumers are pretty uh, straightforward. They like these brands, they want them cheap, but they think there's no difference. And that is the thing that has got to be tackled. And just briefly, I think the answer to, or one of the problems is that if you look at governments across the world, there are some governments that take this very seriously. You know, obviously America, which is the home of brands and Europe, which is a very good place for the defense uh, of, of brands at all sorts of levels. Um, it, it actually does a lot and I'm sure it will do more. The real question is there are very many countries around the world where the governments just turn a blind eye. They're not that interested. They don't see it as a problem. And one of the things that we, they're either actively participating in it, in, in some failed states act, actively participate in, in the illicit trade, you know, in South America, for example, on the, in the tobacco industry, there are instances of, you know, <laughs> complicit activity. Others are just indifferent. And I think one of the things we have been trying to do is point out just how much of an economic difference it makes to all of these countries if they try and stamp it out, because I, I don't really think they are at the moment. And just one final comment is about China. China is often said to be you know, the home of counterfeiting and illicit trade. And but over the over the years, I'm sure there has been a lot. In my experience, China is rapidly trying to stop it because they they believe in developing their own brands and they want their own brands to succeed and they also want their economy to succeed and it's becoming a, a consumer economy they want their own consumers to be uh, consuming safe products that that, that are, are well made and so on so i think actually china is is quietly will quietly emerge as one of the most um keen defenders of brands whereas historically they may not have been um and we we've been working on the iso on various brand management standards and we know the China Council on Brand Development very well. They are all very enthusiastic. So, you know, this could be a, a very good thing. But all governments need to take it seriously and put money behind stopping it. I think you have just traveled all around the world, huh? uh, David. <laughs> Thank you so much. So it's just to prove that the issue is actually present all over the globe, right? Let me introduce um, one thing that actually from the Leading Brands of Spain Association we are um, contributing to in, in, in the sense that we do need joint 
actions. It's not only a problem on the side of the brands and companies or on the side of the consumers or on the side of the government's rights and public administration. It's a joint problem. So sometimes uh, uh, it is necessary, it's always necessary, and sometimes it's even possible to, to, to join those, those initiatives. Uh, just to refer as, uh, as we are a Spanish uh, organization, just to, to give you a few data on uh, some initiatives carried out uh, by private and public sectors and very often working together in the last, in the last years in terms of, uh, let's say, bringing the information about the importance of brands and their contribution to the economy and to the society in general together. Just to mention, mention one, it was uh, an initiative and a campaign actually um, uh, impulsed by the Ministry of uh, Industry, Trade and Tourism altogether with the Spanish Trademark and uh, Patent Office. It was uh, about, um, it was called Diciendo No a las Falsificaciones Ganamos Todos. Sorry for this Spanish introduction, but which means that um, say no to counterfeit, we all win. And actually they tackled it. It was a communication campaign, cross media, addressed um, obviously to a very wide uh, range of uh, consumers. So they, uh, TV was involved, digital was involved as well. And they basically tackled or built this campaign on three most frequently counterfeited sectors, which is apparel, technology, and uh, also, let's say, luxury goods, right? Uh, there are other initiatives that come together from the association, similar to, uh, to, to ours, that, that bring together companies that defend and protect the importance of brands as, um, as a competitive advantage for the, for the companies themselves, but also for the, for the country. For example, the Spanish uh, association uh, and them are all together with the French association, uh, Unifab, right? Uh, they built up a campaign again addressed at the consumers just to show different aspects that are interfered, or let's say that as consumers we are deprived of if we buy a counterfeit product. And it was very interesting because in the end you could feel a test about how much do you know. How much do you know about whether you, you know, the the branded products about illicit trade, about counterfeit, et cetera, et cetera, and whether you can distinguish? And they tackled a problem, of course, there that very very often the the consumers, the B2C, as David referred to, if they are unwillingly buying, have bought, let's say, right, a counterfeit uh, product, it's because they don't have any possibility to distinguish between the genuine one, the original one, and the fake one, especially when uh, when the purchases are carried out online, which is, a, and we haven't talked about it a lot, but definitely going online worldwide has made it more difficult for the consumers to distinguish because sometimes even you have, uh, you, you purchase from the environment that looks identically as your brand. And sometimes they actually take the images from from the original brand, uh, so so. It, it, but there is one more one interesting point in this sense in online things that the consumer should be aware that they give their personal data if they're purchasing and they become more vulnerable. So this is again this is like the twenty first century or twenty second. The digital is actually so present in our lives that besides health, safety, economic damage, 
you know, losses of employment, uh, loss of employment in the countries where the products are sold. We should also think about our digital privacy, you know, so when we do that, actually our data, our information goes out to the, as David said, sometimes criminal organizations, right? Thank you. Thank you. That was very, uh, very important points raised in, in the discussion we're having about, about why consumers are opting for illicit products and what brands can do to sort of educate and prevent this um, this erosion of trust in, in brands that illicit trade actually results in. Uh, so I just wanted to remind our listeners that we are um, very open to questions and you can post your question on YouTube, Facebook or Twitter, depending on where you're following our events. Um, and probably I'll start to move a bit towards the questions we have from the audience. One of the questions we received is, uh, have government's product bans contribute to illicit trade? This is from Fabio. And um, so it's probably um, built on everything we, we, we talked about before, but I think we didn't, we, we didn't bring up specific bans. We talked about marketing restrictions, branding restrictions. But could you maybe pinpoint some examples of countries that banned something and then, then we saw the spike in illicit products and to sort of um, elaborate a bit about how those uh, product bans contribute to the erosion of, of, of credible trade and as a result, boost illicit activities? Please feel free to, to, to step in as you'd like. Well, sh sh shall I just give uh, a small piece of evidence, which comes from our report that we've just produced. If, if anyone wants to go and look at the marketing restrictions report, um, it cites the experience in Australia following the uh, plain packaging uh, legislation uh, around tobacco. Now that isn't um, a ban but it is um, a very serious restriction, clearly a serious restriction on being able to identify one product from another. And my understanding is that um, overall, the level of smoking in Australia hasn't actually decreased since uh, 2017. So over the last five years, people are smoking as much as they were, but there has been a lot of counterfeit products sold and something like 15% of all cigarettes sold in Australia now come from illicit sources. The point being that um, if you have plain package, it's much easier to counterfeit the thing. Uh, they're still high value products. They're still attractive to, to criminals and they're still selling them sort of one-to-one uh, -one and on the black market. So you have this odd situation where the Australians have um, tried to constrain the consumption of, of cigarettes by plain packaging. It doesn't really seem to work. And, and I suppose you could actually historically point back to prohibition in America. I mean, just because they abolished the ability to buy um, um, alcohol in most, you know, uh, bars and clubs and, and restaurants, it didn't stop people drinking. In fact, prohibition saw um, counterfeit product or um, illicit product go through the roof. And it, all the things that um, we are now saying about other products, you know, it's bad for health, it cuts tax consumption, it promotes uh, criminal activity. All of that happened in Prohibition, which is why in the end they abandoned it. Um, it, it we seem to be going down that same route, unfortunately. So um, frequent, if something is really wanted by people, it will be consumed. Bans don't necessarily work, so it's better to find other ways. 
Yes, I think that ties well into, into a conversation about the project spans. I think Ireland and, and the EU would be a great example, not so much of project spans, but more of, high, of how high taxation on cigarettes results in explosive illicit trades uh, that's going on also probably because of uh, proximity towards countries with more agile tax regimes. But that's a bit of it, taking this conversation into a different direction. Um, so we have another question, uh, unless you, Tamara, wanted to comment on the previous one that, that's okay let's try to answer as many questions as we as we can so we can be helpful okay uh, so the next question is um from brands uh what are the biggest regulatory challenges i assume for brands to enforce their protection so i would like to go first the floor is yours what are the biggest regulation challenges <laughs> yeah, I, I think i think that was the question um that the world is unequal, actually. David has already mentioned it. You know, like if all the regulations across over the world were all the same and we were, would all agree on what is what doing good means and what doing good, good bad means, then uh, it would be. Uh, so I think uh, the challenge, uh, one ch one of the biggest challenges, comes of uh, that the, uh, this regulation or legislation is uneven and very different in different markets so this is one of the windows let's say the, for the opportunities so that that can be uh you know difficult to handle and then um the growth the international growth the international expansion all together with all the other challenges uh, also is um we should look at it as it is a long-term you know, vision and strategy for the companies. So um, while doing that, there is really a strategic decision of the companies to build stronger breasts, to invest into them, to go internationally, right? So I think at the same time, if the legislation of helping the companies, you know, to be stronger or to be less vulnerable should go together with that. But as, I, as I'm saying, it's... Um, uh, I, I would say that is the biggest one. And then also, if we look from the uh, other sides, not only the policymakers, but also the administration that accompanies all of it, you know, sometimes it is uh, it is more difficult. Again, we are talking about different country situations, but sometimes for the brands, it is more difficult if you go to build up a business to open a, I don't know, a subsidiary or to employ people and to build brands. You know, sometimes there are other uh, disadvantages when you're doing it in the right way, right? So in the end, again, we are saying that there is a real intention and a real desire of the companies to bring, you know, to keep on building uh, uh, their brands, investing into innovation, creativity, design, going international, right? So I think that there is a necessary, the necessity that the administration goes more hand-to-hand -hand with, the, with the companies in this area, just not, not thinking about prohibiting and banning, but rather thinking about you know, enabling and letting it happen in a more and smoother way, let's say. Uh, is it okay if I contribute something to this? Yes. yes. Um, I think the interesting thing is that um, we're talking about illicit trade. So most of these things are illegal already. So from a regulatory point of view, um, you know, the, the, the rules are already there. The real issue is about enforcement and the funding, financing of enforcement and really having a will to enforce. And this is the problem I was talking about in my last comment. Um, 
Now, just as an aside, one of the clients that we have known and worked with for many, many years, for decades actually, is the consortium of Parma ham producers in Italy. And um, Parma ham is obviously a wonderful brand. It, it, it's a, you know, it's a shared brand by by the consortium and all the all the ham manufacturers. But basically, about one third of all hams in Italy are are sold as Parma. One third are prosciutto, uh, crudo, and one third are just other other products. The average um, price advantage of Parma ham to even good quality prosciutto crudo is about 30%. So there is a huge incentive for certain people to take ham legs and to stamp a ducal crown on them and say that they're Parma ham when they're not. And as a result of that, the consortium for many years has had what they call their own carabinieri. And their carabinieri are entitled to go around from deli to deli. And if they find a counterfeit ham where someone has taken a crudo and put the stamp on it, uh, to confiscate the product and impound it. And, and so it seems a bit ridiculous, doesn't it? But basically, to enforce the legislation in that market to protect the legitimate manufacturers, they have had to have a police force. And if you think about it at a much bigger level, m countries ought to be putting more resources behind the enforcement, maybe having like an FBI to go out and catch people doing this sort of thing. And the real the thing is, everyone will laugh and say, oh, no, we're not going to do that just to protect brands. But the point is, how much is being lost? You know, we talked about the cost to health. We talked about the cost in taxation. We've talked about the cost to shareholders, the reduction in, um, you know, pension uh, payments because, you know, pension funds own the brand, own the companies that own the brands. There are so many economic losses. If, if governments added it all up and thought about it, they probably would create much stronger policing regimes to enforce what is already in the regulatory regime uh, dimension. Uh, let me just point out something a little bit different, but David, you have just made me think about something. We are talking here, we're talking about strong, big, internationally present brands, but in the end, it's not only the question of uh, the titans of this world, right? So if we are talking about the damage that the illicit trade brings not altogether into the economy, but to smaller mid caps. If we think about those companies who really to differentiate themselves, need to be very creative, agile, invest into innovation also as well, et cetera, et cetera, attract the talent to themselves. And then they are faced with, uh, with this issue and they probably don't have even those huge legal departments or you know advisories that could help them to to protect it basically there's also a second not, not not secondary but also a very huge impact on um smaller industries or small and and, and mid companies that are also you know investing a lot into into their brands and into their intangible assets in general so if we think about it, because you have spoken about uh, pensions, I, I have just thought that in a country like Spain, where more than 90% of the businesses are small and mid-caps, actually, we're all going to, to need those companies, you know, to resist, to, to persist and to actually grow so that the, the entire economy could be, you know, generate um, resources for our future uh, you know so i'm sorry it's a little bit different and not answering to the question that 
um, that, that we have been asked. But I thought that it's very important not to talk only about, you know, great companies. Uh, big, but of course, they are most oftenly uh, copied and, uh, you know, um, well, I mean, it, it, is, it is actually the smallest companies that are the big companies of the future. And, you know, they create nice products which grow. I mean, for example, in the UK, there was a company called Innocent. Now, Innocent Drinks was a great innovator, but they were a bit slow off the mark to register their trademarks and protect all of their IP. And a lot of other people copied what they did. And I think you find that in all, all sectors. People look at an idea that's been come up with by someone who innovates and then they immediately try and copy it or um, counterfeit it or whatever it might be. We've been a member of the British Brands Group um, for years and years and years. And their job is to try and <clears throat> persuade supermarkets and others uh, to respect the rights of small manufacturers. Because it's so easy with own label policy to just go and look at someone else's idea and pitch it and turn it into an own label product. But um, I, I think... Coming back to my um, policing idea, the more I think about it, the more it appeals to me. I mean, there, there ought to be a, a federal brand investigation, FBI, that um, has the rights to seriously penalise people if they are caught. I think, you know, coming back to the regulatory point, most of these things have already been legislated against, but if they haven't, then they should be. Um, first of all, you need to have an enforcement capability and the penalties need to be serious. You know, people need to go to jail. People need to have to have all their assets expropriated. They need to know that if they do this thing, it's a major economic crime. It's not just a, oh, well, whatever. <laughs> give, give, give me the, give me the, um, the fake Rolex, I don't mind. Um, so it needs to be taken more seriously. Yes, thank you. I think it's a very valuable point raised here. So I think generally to, to, to wrap up everything we've discussed so far, I think the European Union and the member states should be as focused on enforcement and like uh, responsive actions towards illicit trades as they had to be focused on preventive sides to ensure that there aren't policies in place that stimulate illicit activities and that actually protects brands and and on, on the other side, educates consumers about how not to get caught into um, in, 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 uh, in, in, into some unsafe products. So we have um, roughly uh, 10 minutes left. Uh, we'll have one more question and then maybe we can just do some closing remarks and to see how discussion goes. Um, so uh, we have a question from Yael. Where is most of the illicit trade coming from? However, would like to step in. Feel free. If you want, David, but I was going actually to ask you, because from the centre you observe a lot about what's happening uh, on the illicit trade level. But I mean, it's just uh, this, this global picture of what's happening all around the world. Yes, well, I, I actually yeah. think yeah. It, it is happening everywhere. But if you think about it, China is the biggest manufacturing place in the world. And... Um, so inevitably, there is probably quite a lot of illicit manufacturing going on as well. And I, I do remember a few years ago, someone was saying to me that, that um, sometimes people would set up a factory and they'd be making genuine product on the first two runs. And then they'd have a run overnight where they would make some illicit stuff. So weirdly, the product was technically illicit, but it'd been made in the same factory in the same way as the genuine product. Um, 
and I do think uh, I, I think the Chinese acknowledge that they've had a problem and that they're trying to stamp it out. But you know, when you look, they are by far the biggest manufacturing place in the world. Um, they've got over a billion people. It's a very complex and difficult thing to police. But I do think they are beginning to try and tackle it. The ones that are more dangerous are places that aren't as well controlled as China. You know, so South America, there are quite a lot of road places where various products are being um, illicitly made. Um, West Africa, for example, Nigeria is supposed to be the center for pharmaceutical counterfeiting, which is a terrible thing. And, um, you know, so there are pockets in um, quite large populous places where they have manufacturing capabilities and it's just easy money. It's, you know, like if you could sell something for a hundred and you, you put a fake brand on it and slightly decrease the quality um, and you can sell it for 200, then you're going to do it. So I, th I think there are places in South America, there are places in West Africa, there are places in Asia. Um, and there really needs to be a coordinated global um, campaign to identify them and find ways of closing them down. Uh, thank you, yes. I think in, uh, for, uh, to answer this question, uh, probably, um, uh, in my opinion, the most important thing to consider would be how close countries that become targets of illicit activities are to countries with uh, like Belarus or Russia, where we know many illicit products come from because those products are not taxed in the same way. There isn't as many restrictions as there are in the European Union. And so this is the way for criminals to exploit those routes, which normally they, they i mean we have the interconnectedness in the walls because of globalization it's sort of because of globalization we also have illicit trade so because everything is so interconnected so i think it's 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 a very broad question but the, the very important one and so we have five minutes left uh, unless we have any questions which um, i don't think we have um, I would like to ask you uh, Tamara and David if you had any closing remarks maybe uh, something that we didn't really discuss was the um, intellectual property uh, rights and and their relation to to, uh, to to pens protection and generally to illicit trade because we, we know in the European Union uh, there have been many calls for uh, that we should scrap IP rights and it, it gets replicated across many countries in the world so I think there's especially among consumers who are listening to and to our discussion at the moment, I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding of, of the importance IP rights play and uh, especially undermining them and boosting illicit trade and what we can do to sort of spread awareness about why it is important as much as we had to do about brand protection. Thank you. Tamara, you, you, you by all means go first if you like, or if, you, if you'd rather I did, I will. Yes, you go, you go. Okay, well, you, you can have the last shout at the end then. <laughs> I think um, I started by saying that um, there have been attacks on brands in the sense that brands are a sort of capitalist conspiracy and they are there to damage people's lives and, you know, take their money and, 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 and not give their fair return. I think what I'd like to say is that if you look back over the last couple of hundred years, there are many brands like Cadbury's, for example, uh, or Quaker, that were started with very strong intentions to improve the quality of products in their sector, um, to produce the best things and to be good to all their stakeholders. So it was, you know, caring capitalism, you might call it. And um, it's incumbent on the brand industry 
to make it clear that they are there not just for their own profits but for the benefit of all their stakeholders i think a lot of them are doing that and the purpose movement is moving in that direction uh, and i think it's very important that politicians don't just jump on the bandwagon that they recognize how important these things are there was a thing last year where boris johnson was having a go at uh, all um snack products uh, confectionery products and, and talking about slapping punitive taxes on them um implication being that they were very bad things well there needs to be a slight change in attitude in governments they need to be supportive rather than indifferent or aggressive i totally agree and actually i've been thinking about um, one thing that um, Mr. Kelly has mentioned is about some uh, targets or some people in our society who are more vulnerable to counterfeit, and he mentioned the elder population, also the younger one. So after looking at some reports uh, studying how important are the brands and what is important about the brands and the illicit trade and counterfeit for the younger generations like millennials or Gen Zens, right? And it's very interesting because uh, it, it was Inter's uh, actually research and uh, one of the things is that young consumers and I let me just check the numbers in Italy it is more than 88 percent and the United States it's more than 83 percent young generations they are aware of the intellectual property and of the uh, of the rights that the, the the creators and the manufacturers have, they don't have a very good and detailed information, but they are very conscious about uh, you know they are very respectful towards uh, creativity and individual rights. So I think it, we have the, an opportunity. Uh, to give in more transparent information and to educate maybe more. And I don't know, we are, David has spoken about policy, you know, like FBI, <laughs> I liked it for the brands, but uh, maybe we should think also, if I'm talking about the, the, the government uh, level as well, about it's, it's not only um, how much information you get from the product from the product, but how much to understand about what intellectual properties, what industrial, uh, what, what are the patents, what are the brands actually, and, and, and maybe we can talk about education starting with the kids, you know, and going uh, further and further. So, um, and yet, uh, I think there, there are more opportunities uh, for both consumers and for brands to build trust and trustworthy relationship. And I think this is something that you um, you can build up, a, you know, a, a solid relationship over time on and on again. And then when the companies are at risk so that they could also transparently say, look, I have been, this is what's happening to me. If uh, those of you who would rather see me disappear than keep on doing that, you know, I mean, sometimes we have to be also, as brands, we have to be also uh, aware that the consumers are not always, not, not have this on top of mind of their day-to-day -day and not necessarily this is their um, priority. But when we remind and we talk in a positive way and we talk in the, and how much, um, you know, wealth and how much employment and how much enforcement of the economy uh, we're bringing together by building strong in brands and investing into them. I think that we we all act from a more positive attitude and then we just, I hope so as a consumer, would rather buy a genuine one than a fake one. 
Thank you. Those are very optimistic words to wrap the, the webinar up. I think we all need a bit of a positive attitude towards many issues and many policies globally. Um, so thank you very much for this discussion. It was very, very interesting. I, I hope our listeners learned a lot. I learned a lot myself. So thank you very much for joining our events today. And uh, just probably to remind our listeners, the Consumer Choice Center does a lot of work on illicit trades as well, and we published a paper on illicit trades in the European Union, which you're very welcome to check out on our website under research, as well as on other areas you may be interested in. Uh, so thank you very much, Tamara and David, again. Um, thank you. I hope you enjoyed the webinar as much as we did. Thank you. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.